let me say first that um, it's really such a privilege to uh, have time together with you. It's, um, I know it's not part of your normal uh, Saturday to have a, a, a message in this meeting room. And so that's all the more reason that I really appreciate uh, you being here and, and we being able to be here together. Uh, especially, you came to hear somebody from New Jersey. I mean, you know, what is that all about? What people we, yeah, I, we're used to being kept at arm's length, you know, and uh, you've, uh, you've welcomed me. So it's much appreciated. As I was uh, driving out here, I was listening to uh, a book on tape. It was a book um, by C.H. Spurgeon about uh, the grace of God. And uh, you could do much worse than listen to C.H. Spurgeon's uh, words. There's uh, really so many beautiful thoughts that he expressed. And he told a little story. I'd like to just uh, tell it to you. He told the story of um, a man who lived in a village, and he provided the means for a well of water to be constructed and made available, a, a fountain of water that could be provided for those in the village. And um, he put up a little sign there and a, a cup that was available. And he, the sign said, please drink at this fountain. And it was apparently a very crude looking sign, kind of you know, hand lettered and everything. And there was an artist who came and looked at this sign and he was very, um, very critical of what this sign looked like. And he was telling other people, this is, this is really terrible. I could do much better. This sign is so pitiful. And so they told the, the man who had provided for the fountain for the well to be uh, uh, made available. And the man said, have people been drinking at the fountain? And they said, oh, yes, many hundreds come. And they drink the water from the fountain. And he said, well, then I'm not so worried about what the artist thinks. And maybe one day the artist himself will be satisfied at that fountain. And C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, in his writing, uh, he said, so I hope that you'll be able to receive these words uh, because they're the fountain uh, that satisfies. And I just thought, you know, that's such a beautiful way to, to speak about the word of God anytime uh, we open it. It's always coming through someone who is who is uh, weak and imperfect and, and uh, you know, we stumble over our words anytime we speak about the word of God. We're, we're holding eternity in our hands and here we are, these finite human beings trying to uh, express what the word of God says. We have the spirit of God who empowers us and yet, you know, look at us. Here, this is who he's using uh, is people like you and me. But, but we can count on the beauty and the refreshment of of the Word of God. So I'm sure that we'll be able to uh, enjoy the scriptures together this evening. I'm going to turn to the book of 2 Peter and uh, read a few verses from chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I really kind of love that in chapter 3, Peter uh, is acknowledging the fact that this is his second letter. We get a little insight uh, into what he's desiring from the two letters that he's been writing. He um, had sent, obviously, the first letter some time before, and he's writing this second letter to the same uh, recipients. And he says in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James, and he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before 
by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And I've just paused at these first two verses and say how valuable it is for any one of us as believers to have our pure minds stirred up, to just be, be made sensitive to the fact that God himself has spoken to us as his people. And Peter is saying here, there were words before, spoken by the holy prophets, speaking of the Old Testament writings, and of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. We are giving this full revelation, and this is one continuous story. Sometimes people will tell us that they have the impression that, well, you know, there's the Old Testament God, and then there's sort of the New Testament God, and, and uh, there's, there's uh, functioning that's different, and there's attitudes that are different, but it's not that way. It's one continuous story. This book is God's story of redemption, his intention for what he had always intended creation to be, what he had always intended his relationship with mankind to be. And so Peter says, you know, my main goal is just to keep you active, keep you sensitized to the fact that God has given us his story. But then he lets them know in verse 3, why is it that they need to be sensitized to this? Why do they need to be so aware of the fact that God has given us his word? It's because, knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And just pause there for a moment. And I suppose that if we've been Christians for any length of time, we've all had experience with this as well. Here's Peter writing his epistle to these scattered believers. They had been scattered abroad because of persecution and other factors that had forced them out of their comfortable circumstances. And here they are, and he says, just keep in mind that God has his story. But let's acknowledge that there are scoffers all around us. He's, he speaks about the, the last days. And it's, it's kind of interesting to see this expression a few places in the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that God has spoken at various times and in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us in his Son. And so, in a sense, this whole time period from the incarnation of Christ can be classified as the last days. But Peter says, well, you know, there's these last days where there's a, a lot of scoffing. And then Paul says, I think it's in 1 Timothy 4, he says, in the last days, there's still some more last days when it's going to be perilous. Perilous times are going to come. That's not my main subject, but, uh, you know, somebody has said, well, if, if it's the last days ever since the Lord Jesus was born, then I guess eventually we're going to be in the last days of the last days. And maybe that's where we're at. We're in a time where scoffers and, as uh, the Apostle John writes, many antichrists already have gone into the world, even in his time the opposition to the gospel message, the opposition to that, uh, that, that redemption story that we see ourselves part of. And so there's this criticism in verse 4 about the promise of his coming. They say, these scoffers, they say, God doesn't intervene 
in the world. Everything just continues on. It's always the same. And Peter says, well, that's not really true. Because there's something in history that took place that shows that things don't just keep on going uniformly over and over, generation to generation. There's something that happened. Verse 5, this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And so Peter is using this uh, historical event, the flood in the time of Noah, to say, you know, that's not always, it's not, it's not entirely true. It's not at all true that God never intervenes, that God is completely uh, unaware of what's going on in our world. There was a time where God intervened, and he uses this moment to strengthen the believers in his day. And all of this that I've just been sharing with you is kind of introductory to what I would like to share with us this evening. And it's this very same point that God has been so attentive to the world in the previous time, that the world that then was, the world that was, and the world that was is used as a way to encourage the believers that are in the time of Peter. And we can take it for ourselves also. The world that was. What was the world that was? What was it like? The world that was lasted a certain point. It, it lasted up to a certain point. The world that was no longer exists. The world that was ended in the time of Noah. And so we have a very defined period of what the scripture uses this phrase. We'll just use this phrase as a little uh, title of our thought here, the world that was. So let's turn back to the book of Genesis, and I would like to just consider what the world that was, was. What was it like in the world that was? Turn back to Genesis chapter 4. Here in this chapter, we remember that in chapter 3, we are informed, uh, to set up chapter 4, we're informed of the, uh, the fall of mankind, the temptation by the serpent of Eve and Adam. There was failure to keep God's commandment, and there is the curse that is declared upon the serpent and upon humanity and upon all of creation. And we see that then in uh, the beginning of chapter 4, uh, Adam and Eve, their family, begins after this moment where they have been driven out of the Garden of Eden. And Cain is born in verse 1. And Abel is born in verse 2. And we might remember the uh, occasion where as uh, adult men, they bring a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and Abel brings a sacrifice of the flock, and Cain brings a sacrifice of the crops of the ground that he had produced through the sweat of his own brow, and God does not receive Cain's offering. God would have received Cain if he had brought the correct offering instead. God was not 
uh, shunning Cain. He did not say, forget it, you lost your chance. Abel brought the sacrifice that was appropriate. Cain did not, but could have. Instead, Cain, in his anger, killed his brother Abel. And this took place uh, there in the next verses. And Cain is then judged by the Lord. And what I would like to uh, take note of here is that we have Cain, who in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, this is a very significant moment in the development of the world that was, because sometimes we might have the impression that when Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, that they were driven from the presence of the Lord. But if you look back at the end of chapter 3, all it says is that they were prevented from remaining in the Garden of Eden. They, they were sent out of the Garden of Eden, verse 23. And the Garden of Eden was protected. The entrance to the Garden was protected. But you know what never happened? God never drove humanity away from the presence of the Lord. It's Cain who willfully chose to depart from the presence of the Lord and to start his own life. In verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so this world has a new direction for someone like Cain. Cain has chosen to leave the presence of the Lord. Meanwhile, verse 25 in the same chapter, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed, me, uh, has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, or Enos. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so if you could sort of picture uh, walking through a forest and coming to a point where there are two uh, ways that diverge, you know, there's that famous poem, some, you might have had to read, uh, read it or memorize it in high school or write an essay about what it meant, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and uh, Robert Frost writes this poem and he says, I took the road less traveled by and that made all the difference, and there, there's this whole time period uh, in the poem where he's like looking down one path and looking down the other path trying to see where people have gone in the past. Well, in the scriptures in this chapter, we have a divergence. We have someone who has chosen to leave the presence of the Lord. And his brother, Seth, he continues on in his family. And his, in his life, in his family, people began to call on the name of the Lord. His son, in the time of Enosh, his son, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What is it that people thought of if you were in the line of Cain? The city that's called after our own names. I've got a son, I'm going to name the city after him, I'm going to have a heritage, people are going to remember me and, and my line, my family, I'm going to make a name for myself in this world. And Seth says, what good is it if people remember me and my son? There's no value in that. Instead, 
Seth is trained, no doubt, by Adam and Eve, his parents, and he passes on that spiritual knowledge to his son, and there's this divergence of the line of Cain that follows its own fame and its own achievements and establishes its own uh, supposed value uh, from its achievements. And then there's the line of Seth and his son, where people begin to call on the name of the Lord. And this is the first great uh, encouragement that I think we can get from this time period. Peter says to his readers, the world that was perished, but in that world there was the line of Seth. The line of Seth was a, a faithful line. There, there is opportunity for every one of us to be that faithful line, to carry on that faithful line as we call on the name of the Lord. What other name do we have in heaven or on earth? There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there's no other name that does something for our hearts the way the name of Jesus does something for our hearts. To call upon the name of Jehovah, the name of the one who makes himself known to his people, who wants a relationship with his people. People began to call on the name of the Lord. And this was established for the generations that came. We have the generations recorded for us in chapter 5. In chapter 5, we see Adam um, mentioned. There's sort of a review and recap of what has taken place. Then we have Seth mentioned in verse 3. We have Enosh mentioned in verse 6. And then we carry on these generations. Here is a line of faithful generations, one after the other, that carries on this, this mindset of calling on the name of the Lord. We reach verse 18, and we meet someone like Enoch. Enoch is born in verse 18, and in verse 21 we're told that he lived for 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. And then we have Methuselah in verse 25, who begot Lamech. And in verse 28 we have Lamech, who begot Noah in verse 29. And we know the story of Noah. That brings us to this, this uh, moment where the world that was is going to reach its end. So interesting to think of what is taking place in the time of Enoch and onward. We don't really know very much about uh, Seth and Enosh and Canaan and Mahalalel, these other names. This is really all we know of them in the scriptures. But when we come to Enoch, of course, he's highlighted several times in the Word of God. He's the seventh from Adam. And in him, we might say that there's a, a full development of this, this mindset of calling on the name of the Lord. Enoch was in tune with the mind of the Lord. We read all the way in the New Testament in the book of Jude that Enoch was troubled by all the ungodliness that already had developed. All the ungodly sinners of his day, he prophesied in the future that the Lord was going to be coming from heaven with ten thousands of his saints to judge those ungodly sinners for all their ungodly words and all their ungodly actions. He knew that God was attentive 
to the world that he lived in. It's very good for us to never be in despair. Is God attentive? Does he even know what's happening? You could read through the Psalms, and people were very honest. Lord, how long? How long are the wicked going to prosper? How long are we going to be in such trial and difficulty? But the psalmists who would ask questions like that, they would conclude with regularity. Yes, Lord, I know you see. I know you know. I know you see my case. I know you see the case of your people nationally. I know you have your Redeemer who is going to bring in righteousness on the earth. And so Enoch, he's already in sort of that line of things. He's already looking ahead, knowing that the God who is allowing this wickedness on the earth, this overflowing iniquity that's prospering, he knows that God has not forgotten. God is not uh, incapable of dealing with it. It's just that God allows things to go much farther than often we think he should. We're so ready. Deal with it now. God says, no, just wait. When I deal with evil, it's going to be obvious to everybody that it was really evil. It's going to be obvious to everyone that what was set right needed to be set right. And so Enoch, he sees this. We, we know of that uh, from him in Jude. But, you know, even in naming his son Methuselah, we see something else in this name. Methuselah uh, is a very interesting name. The name Methuselah means, you, you'll see it sort of explained differently, but the best I can understand it is, when he dies, it will come. When he dies, it will come. Methuselah, you could count up the years of how long Methuselah lived, and you can look at his son Lamech, and you could look at uh, Lamech's son Noah, and we know that Noah was 600 years old, so we're told that later on, when the flood came. When Methuselah died, it's the year the flood came. Noah knew his great-grandpa, or his grandpa, Methuselah. But he didn't know his great-grandpa, Enoch, because Enoch was only on the earth uh, for a much shorter time than any of these other uh, old-time old uh, saints. But Methuselah lived the longest of any human being that's recorded in the scriptures. And really, it's so beautiful that Enoch sees the, the terrible wickedness of the world and says, this son of mine is going to be a symbol of what is taking place in this world. This son of mine is going to be a reminder that God is going to intervene. And God is so gracious that he, he could we say, he, he allows this, uh, this desire on Enoch's part, he allows that to be in precise alignment with his own judgment. The time of judgment came in the year that Methuselah died. But isn't it so beautiful that God, in grace, would allow Methuselah to live that long? The longest living person in the record of Scripture. You know, if, if God was an angry, vengeful God, and we know God is angry with the wicked, 
Scripture tells us this, but he is so gracious. He's so merciful. He's so long-suffering and patient that when Enoch names his son Methuselah, when he dies, it will come that God says, he's going to be the longest living person ever because my mercy and my long-suffering is going to endure. I want people to hear that there's a different way. There's an opportunity to be to leave behind all the things that have become their distractions. Just pause in a moment, uh, for a moment, in the uh, thought of Enoch. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. There's another seventh from Adam. We jumped over his history, but look back at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 18. We see another Enoch. This is the Enoch, the son of Cain. This is not our Enoch who walked with God in chapter 5. We had Cain and then Enoch, and then the line of Cain is developed in verse 18 to Lamech, a different Lamech. We have a Lamech in chapter 5. Here's Lamech in the line of Cain. Lamech is the seventh from Adam. And so we have uh, the line of Seth, which culminates at stop number 7 in Enoch. We have the line of Cain, which culminates in stop number seven, in Lamech. Lamech did whatever he could to undo the fabric of God's moral order. He is the first one recorded to have two wives. He is recorded as making up a song of joy in verse 23 about killing someone who bumped into him that's my loose paraphrase. Uh, verse 23, he commands his wives, listen to what I'm going to say, and it, it's, in, it's in Hebrew poetry. Maybe your Bible sort of writes it in, in verse uh, or shows by the indentation that this is not just conversation. This is his artistic expression of how delighted he is that he killed someone for wounding him, a young man for hurting me. I deserve to be protected even more than Cain. He took such delight in his violence. And what else I think is worth noticing is that Lamech's children are mentioned in verse, I'd like to look at this, verse 20. Uh, Ada, one of his wives, had a son named Jabal, and Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. But look back at these, these, um, these characteristics or these interests uh, of Jabal and Jubal and Tubal-Cain. These don't seem like very bad things. Right there, uh, Jabal, he made pioneering uh, efforts for tent living and for livestock development. He was known as an expert in this area. Jubal was the musician of the day. He invented musical instruments. We have that impression that he, he invented these different kinds of instruments and he uh, was very skilled at them, much like all those four of you who were up here earlier. And Here's Tubal-Cain, who he was uh, a skilled artisan in bronze and iron. 
We know people like this today, right? You can go to the art museums of the world and you can go to the uh, musical concert halls of the world and, and you can go out into the uh, farmlands of the world and these things are part of life. And they don't seem so bad, the tents and the livestock. In fact, Abraham was a tent dweller and David kept sheep and the musical uh, instruments that praise the Lord in the uh, time of the tabernacle and the temple, these were beautiful expressions of praise to the Lord. And the artifices of bronze and iron, think of all the uh, skillful work that was produced in making the tabernacle, for example, and the temple in the days of Solomon. These are not bad things. What's the matter with these things? Really nothing except these were distractions from having any relationship with the Lord. These are earthly things. They're not sinful in themselves. We learn in the scriptures that worldly things are always sinful. The things that are in the world are pride and desire and, and strife and struggle and self-satisfaction. That's the things that are in the world. They're always wrong. But there's also earthly things, and they're fine, except if we use them to replace a relationship with the Lord who made us. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to tell you, you Philippians, that there are some who live their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ, and their God is their appetites, and their mindset is earthly things. And you know, sometimes there are even God's people who have been overcome by earthly things. It might not be worldly things. It might not be the sins of pride and self-satisfaction. We just get lost in our hobbies. We just get lost in our enjoyments. And we don't link them with who God is. We don't receive all things. In 1 Timothy 6, it says that God has made all things richly for us to enjoy. To, we, we can find so much satisfaction in all the things of this earth if we receive them as coming from him. But Cain's line, let's leave all that. Uh, we're not going to associate this with God. We're just going to find our identity in our art or in our music or in our hobbies or in our livelihoods, farming, herds, and so on. And we do have this, this habit in our world. This is the world that was. But really, it's, we find these illustrations for our time today as well. And so that's the time of Enoch, is the line of, of, uh, of Lamech in the lineage of Cain. But finally, we come to Noah. In verse 29, back in chapter 5, Lamech also is a prophet, Noah's father, and he says, this is the one who's going to bring us rest. This is the one who's going to bring us comfort. This is the one who's going to uh, bring us confidence, despite the fact that God has cursed the ground. And we know the history of how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. By this point, it's Noah and his family that are the only ones God can find in the entire earth 
that are faithful to him. You want to talk about scoffers, you know, at least we have more than eight people in this room, right? If Noah had a meeting, eight people would come, and seven of them had to come because they were his relatives. They wanted to be there, I think, but he would make sure they were there, right? No allowance for you if you don't show up. But there they are, among the scoffers. The overflow of iniquity will always overtake the line of the godly to the point where it's only Noah. I don't know how frustrated you've been living in a world that shuts God out, but I don't think we've ever been in a position like Noah. Even Elijah, who thought he was the only one. God says, I have 7,000 more that have not bowed the knee or kissed Baal. But Noah really was. It was him and seven others. In fact, we don't really even know the spiritual status of all of them. But because he was the head of the family and he was just in the eyes of God, God said this to him. Not only did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord, but also the Lord was evaluating Noah's choices and said, you only have I found who's just. You walk before me. Noah walked with God too. Enoch walked with God and God took him. Noah walked with God and, no and God said, you're going to stay in this world. You're going to be a preacher of righteousness. You're going to give opportunity for all the wicked of this world to be delivered from the judgment that's coming. And possibly not even all of his family really were the Lord's. We have questions about some of the behavior of at least one of his sons, and certainly the lineage of uh, two of his sons uh, is not uh, inherently godly. But Noah shows us that it's always possible to live for the Lord. No matter how dark the world is, when we look back at the world that was, it never has been so dark in our days. People say, oh, the world is getting to be terrible. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it's a wonderful place as far as God is concerned. God's rights are trampled on. But frankly, I don't know how sorry we should feel for ourselves as believers when we think back to what it was like for Noah. Or even the first century believers. What, what believers do you read of in the first century who had you know, a, a God-fearing city it was easy to live in Corinth. No, it wasn't. It was easy to live in Philippi. No, it wasn't. It was not easy to be a Christian in any of the cities of the New Testament era. And so we have this encouragement that we can always live for the Lord in whatever era we're in. And we're going to close by turning back to Peter. But let's look at 1 Peter now. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 speaks about Christ, First Peter 3 verse 18, Christ who suffered once for sins, and then there is a review back to these disobedient people who lived in the time of Noah in verse 20. The divine long-suffering in the middle of that verse waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an anti-type which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, 
but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Peter uses Noah's experience, the end of the world that was, to say, you know, the end of the world that was brought Noah into something new. And we Christians, says Peter, we Christians, we are, we put to death the body of sin when we come to the Lord, the, the symbolic act of water baptism, which as far as we can tell in New Testament times was uh, carried out upon belief. So many times we see this in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament era, that somebody believed and was baptized. And so Peter is, is expecting that his, his readers understand that, you know, when you pass through baptism, that didn't wash away your sins, didn't remove the filth of the flesh, but it, it gave you a good conscience in God's presence. I'm, I'm declaring a new allegiance, and it links us with not just the death, but coming out of baptism, it, we now are linked with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where is he? He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers are subject to him. That's who we're associated with right now. And so when we look at how dark the world that was, was, then we say, I have the same opportunity as Noah to live for the Lord and to be linked with this new beginning this exalted, glorified Christ who is going to have, in a coming day, the, every, all these um, powers will be made subject to him, but he already has that authority. They already are subject to him. He just has not put that on display yet. He's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. But right now, we're associated with him. Just like Noah was associated with the God who could judge correctly, but also the God who would show grace, and the God who would bring Noah through those waters and make him the initiator of a new type of life, a new beginning on the earth, we too are associated with the Lord Jesus Christ to have resurrection life, not just old, boring earthly things life that leaves God out and shuts out his authority, we're associated with the one who has all authority. Now, I've been invited to uh, speak tomorrow morning as well, and I would like to continue, if the Lord allows, uh, to look not just at the world that was, as we have this evening, but to look tomorrow at the world that is, and also the world that is to come because we have all three of these in the scriptures. We've looked at the world that was, where it was possible in the darkest of days to live for the Lord. Well, the world that is, is a difficult place also. And the world to come has a wonderful, beautiful promise. And all three of these aspects of time give us instruction as to how we can live for the Lord. So may he encourage us as we think back to the darkest of days and realize that we can live for him. And may he continue to encourage us as we look at his word on our own and in time to come. Shall we pray together? 
Our God and Father, we are so grateful for your word and for its, um, its honesty, for its uh, recognition, uh, acknowledgement of the wickedness, uh, the overflowing iniquity that stains this world. Sin always does what it does. And the moment a little stain was allowed into this world, it marred your entire creation, our God. But you have always had uh, a rescuer in reserve. And that rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has been here, and he is now exalted in that place of honor and given all authority. And we can be associated with him because of his work. And so we pray that you will encourage us uh, to uh, live differently the way Enoch did and to live differently the way Noah did and to be associated with that resurrection life, to be empowered by the Lord from heaven. Give us uh, the ability to discern the things that might turn us aside and to uh, refuse them and give us the ability to uh, move onward in this world that we live in so that we can honor you. We give thanks, our God and Father, uh, for the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.